Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. On September 11, 2021, Wendell Stradford marked his 63rd birthday, the birth of his granddaughter, and the end of his nearly 40-year career with the New York City Police Department. Detective Stratford aged out of service after spending the bulk of his career working and solving cold cases. There were many successes in the detective's time on the job, but there were many challenges that came along with it. He joined the department in 1984, prior to the consolidation of the New York City Transit Police and Housing Authority Police in 1995. Stratford built a reputation as a superb investigator and proud public servant, despite the dangers of policing. While off-duty, Stratford made sure to carve out time to coach his children and local high school athletes. He's coached several basketball teams, including the Police Athletic League, and has served as the longtime assistant coach at St. Peter's Boys High School on Staten Island. After a long career chasing down criminals and solving heinous crimes, Stratford was asked to share his expertise consulting on TV crime shows, which is how he's been spending time in retirement. You're listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Detective Stratford, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Well, yes, I want to dive right in and let listeners know that we were already introduced in October of last year, and I quickly learned at that time that the 20th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center on 9-11 also marked a significant time for you and your family. So can you recall that recent anniversary and what it meant for you? Yes, um, it's always easy for me to remember because it was my birthday. I was born September 11th a long, long time ago. And my granddaughter was born the same day that was the last day for me in the NYPD. They age you out at 63. So on September 11th, I turned 63. And they told me, glad to have you here, but you can't stay here. And they showed me the door. So, you know, they gave me a walkout. And um, my daughter, my oldest daughter at the time was pregnant and she delivered the same day. That's an amazing event for that anniversary. So many milestones. And you mentioned you aged out of the NYPD. So let's go back to the beginning. When did you realize you wanted to be a NYPD officer? And do you mind painting a picture of the city at that time? So I was away at college. Um, I was in North Dakota and um, I had come back home and, you know, I couldn't find any work, but, you know, it was very bad here. That was like 80, 81, 82 was kind of bad here as crime wise. And a lot was going on. So I moved to Maryland. I was living in, in Hyattsville, uh, Maryland. I was working for the um, National Institute of Health, um, NIH, but it wasn't what I went to school for and I wasn't happy with it. And I had three family members that were on the job. My uncle was a sergeant, Frank Dudley, in the 120. I had a cousin, uh, Clinton Jackson, who was a detective in the 84. 
and another cousin, Bobby Dudley, who was a correctional state correctional officer. So, you know, and they were, you know, uh, Frankie was way older than I was, but the other two were closer in age, probably 10 years, but we all kind of grew up together in West Brighton and Manus Harbor. And, you know, so I would talk to them about, you know, what was going on, their experiences. And, you know, they would tell me, they're like, oh, you should take this job, you know, civil service, you get all the benefits, family plan, this, that, the other. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to be a cop. So I, you know, thought about it. And my, my uncle, Frank, was like, just take the test, just take the test. So I took the test and I passed. And then they called me to come. They, they had a class open and I had to get a deferral because I was working. I was living in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And then they gave me the deferral. And next thing you know, they're reaching out to me again and saying, listen, the test that you took, the list is going to expire. If you don't take the if you don't take the job now, you're going to have to retest again. So I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do it. And so I came up and I started the process to um, the investigation process for the transit police at the time, you know, and then I got on the job in the middle of winter, January 6, 1984. Um, I got sworn in and it was like the coldest day that I could ever remember other than being in North Dakota. <laughs> And what did you experience? Did it live up to the expectations that your family members, uh, you know, painted for you, like going through the academy in your early career? The academy was easy for me. I, I was in shape. I played college ball and I was constantly working out. So that was a breeze. It was no problems. The classes weren't a problem. And the instructors that I had most of them were um, Vietnam veterans mm -hmm. and some of them were older guys, but they were very, very direct with us, telling us exactly what to expect when you get out there. And for me, being a transit cop, you know, they sent me to Brooklyn, uh, to East New York, District 33. And I wasn't prepared for exactly the way it was because I thought just having that uniform on mm -hmm. would be, uh, you know, the be all the end all. And I think my second day on patrol, that was in June of 84, riding the train elevated station. And as we pull into a station on the J line, someone walks up to the window and say, hey officer, hey officer, can I ask you a question? And you know, I just leaned over to the window. The windows were different than they opened up. They were top to bottom. And the guy spit in my face and it tripped off my face and onto my uniform. And the training officer I was with, Willie Harris said to me, he goes, kid, you never, ever, ever put your face near the windows when you're on the train, when people are on the platform. He goes, we can get off the next stop and go back. They'll probably still be there. Or you can just take this as a learning experience. And I was like, no, there's no point in going back. They're not going to be there. So we went. So in that command, my first year in District 33, three of the cops that I worked with got shot. Um, Irma Lozada was the first one to get killed. She was the first female officer to get killed. We all turned out uh, the same day together to go on patrol. She was in plain clothes and I was in uniform, but um, there were like three shootings in the command that year, but there were shootings in that part of Brooklyn, East New York. It was a 7-5 precinct, 7-3, uh, part of the 8-3, you know, and District 33 covered all those precincts. And we, every time we went someplace, shots fired, shots fired. And it was just crime. You know, I mean, growing up on Staten Island, you know, living in West Brighton and Manus Harbor, it was a different type of crime. I mean, there was crime on Staten Island, but it wasn't like the crime there. So it was, uh, was eye-opening for me. 
we were talking offline earlier about the merge that the city went through with the three different agencies and you just mentioned it started in transit. So can you just give a little bit more context to our listeners about that cultural change for you um, during your early part of your career? So the merge affected a lot of people a lot of different ways. Um, it was positive for me and I can't see how it wasn't positive for other guys also, but some people became cops for not for the right reason. I'm just going to be honest. You know, some, it was just all about the benefits, the pay, and the days off. Other guys actually really wanted to fight crime. They actually wanted to make a difference in somebody's life. And so you could do it in either department you were with, but there were more opportunities to do more when they merged the departments. I mean, we, we went through a lot of changes. I mean, as a transit cop, you know, life was tough. I mean, our radios were bad and you worked by yourself. I mean, I didn't do TPF, which was eight at night to four in the morning. They just put me in straight to rotating, meaning I did days four to 12 and midnights. And a lot of times, except for on the midnights, I worked by myself and you had to deal with things. You had to learn to be like, hey, I'm the only guy here. And if someone take, and I need help and someone's taking a train to get to me, they're not getting there anytime soon. You know, they ran, you know, the trains run on schedule. They would have to get up in the street and flag down a car or an RMP, radio motor patrol car would be responding, you know, to my call for help or whatever. But you learned how to deal with that. You were by yourself. You learned you had your nice stick, you had your gun, you had your radio and you had your common sense and you learned how to talk to people. You could calm a situation down, but everything didn't work that way. And then when you did have a partner, things were a little bit easier it still was tense because you know people just don't voluntarily say okay officer you got me and stick their hands out and say you're going to jail so the merge was a financial windfall for the city the city was already paying our salaries the transit authority and the housing authority did not pay our salaries it was just in the city charter that each agency had to be supplied with a police force to protect property and patrons and so forth. So the housing authority at the buildings and the people that lived there, the transit authority had the trains, their employees, and the peep the ridership. So the city had to provide them with police. It's just like people don't understand that the, we have the aqueduct police, which is really the reservoirs, which are NYPD officers assigned to protect the reservoirs in upstate New York and along other areas within New York and maybe outside of New York City, someone has to protect those reservoirs because that, that water comes into the city. We have cops assigned there. You know, the MTA has their own police force, which people say, oh, that's the transit cops. No, it's not the transit cops. It's, it's Metropolitan Transit Authority. Totally different. The city pays no money for them whatsoever. But the city used to take care of, we had the old Staten Island Rapid Transit Police. The city took care of those cops. But then there wasn't that many of them, and the MTA opted to absorb them into their agency, and the city said, yeah, go ahead. We'll do it, because we still cover that. Like I said, it, it opened up a lot of opportunities for me, because I, I liked the job. I liked doing what I did. I had already become a detective before the merge, and as far as the detective is concerned, there wasn't a lot of opportunities for me to move around unless I went to a task force. Um, which was always comprised of NYPD, state police, and housing police and transit police. 
but it was hard to get into those. So, you know, if you got picked, you got picked. If you didn't, you just have to wait your turn. Um, there were other opportunities that the NYPD opened up to us before the merge, but again, if there were 6,000 detectives in NYPD, they would only take 10 to 20 transit detectives and maybe 10 to 15 mm -hmm. housing detectives. So the really opportunities weren't there and the merge opened up everything. Plus there were people who saw that if you did your job, you know, opportunities opened up. They're like, hey, you know, that detective, he's on the ball or that cop, he's on the ball. You know, why don't we bring him in for an interview, see if he wants to do this or do that, which you couldn't get in the transit police and how's it, yeah, they, they gave you accolades for what you did, but it was like a pulling teeth for them to acknowledge what you did because the whole thing back then, and people are gonna hate me for saying this, was to give the perception that there was no crime or that we were doing a great job fighting crime in the subway and in the housing projects, you know, and it, it was so far from the truth. There was so many things going on down in the subway mm -hmm. That was like, well, make the report and we'll give it to the detectives. Make the report and do this. You know, the press comes down here, you don't know anything about it. Send them to DCPI, let DCPI handle it. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. You know, you think homeless is bad now, you should have mm -hmm. seen it back then. We're gonna unpack more details about your career later in the okay. conversation, but I'm wondering if you've ever thought about the timing of this experience in your career, right? The, the big organizational change, the crime rate in the city, and the fact that you just described responding on your own, having those experiences so early when you didn't have any other experience really to fall back on, do you think that that set you up for a more resilient path in the future that you had that sort of base? Yes, knowing the way it was, and how it was going to be. It was it was really uncertain how it was going to be with the merge. I mean, all you had were the naysayers telling, oh, they're gonna make you do this, oh, they're gonna make you do that. And come to find out, it wasn't like that at all. And the things that they were making us do are things that we should have been doing all along. So, it, you know, it was Mayor Giuliani, uh, Commissioner Bratton and Jack Maple who kind of put the framework together to merge the departments. And then it was, it saved the city money because there were classes that you didn't have to hire and you could you could actually, you, you're talking maybe 6,000 uniform cops that you were already paying for, bringing them on to one big department and now utilizing those resources to fight the crime that was going up. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. You know, they moved everybody around, you know, you, you still had to main, maintain a sufficient level of manpower in the subways and the projects, but now you could move people around to do other things to combat crime that was hitting you on fronts in places that you couldn't move other people. So it, it was, um, you know, it, it was good. And it, like I said, it opened up doors for me that just weren't there. You know, I was already a detective and it was getting a little stagnant. You know, I, I was worked with a good group of guys um, we had a great command, but there was more that I felt that I could be doing if I was able to, you know, move to other places, so. Yeah. In terms of mentors, did you have anyone that helped you along the way that you looked up to that you sought to emulate? And if so, what were some of the traits and attributes that you respected? 
it's kind of hard to say, you know, looking up to people. I mean, they were guys I respected, but I've always had my own path that I chose to follow. My uncle Frank was a sergeant in the police department. He was never a detective, but he was like one of those cool cats. You know, I'd sit down and talk to him and he and his partner would be at his house sometimes and, you know, he'd be kicking it with me and he's telling me, oh yeah, we did this today. We did that today. And it was like, I was like, oh, no kidding. And then it was my cousin Clinton who was already a detective. And he was like one of those uh, laid back guys, you know, talking to him was like, yeah, when you become a detective, he goes, you'll see. It's a whole different world. Those guys talking about that patrol stuff. He goes, yeah, he goes, the detective is the way it is. And, you know, I said, well, tell me. And he goes, it's hard to explain to you. He said, you're going to do things and you're going to figure out things and you're going to look and see, you know, like how come this guy didn't do this? How come this guy didn't do that? But it was just his demeanor. He carried himself in a way where it was like, <sighs> he was better than everybody else, but he wasn't, but that's the way he appeared because of the way he talked. He was a big guy. Um, Clinton was like, I don't know, six, six, maybe three, but he was like 250. You know, his son and daughter both were, were cops. His daughter, Tanya, um, she was a sergeant. His son, Troy, was a cop. Um, and he, that's just that's just the way he was. And then he just, you know, when I became a detective, you know, and I had to pass through his command one time, he goes, what are you doing here? I said, I got an arrest. He said, what for? So I told him, he says, anybody help you with the paperwork? I go, I got it. He goes, let me see. So I showed it to him and he was like, eh. Let me, let me just show you here. I'm going to write something on a piece of paper for you. And you look at what I wrote and then look at what you wrote for your narrative and see which one you like better. So I looked at it and I looked at mine. I go, well, it's too late for me to change this. He goes, it's never too late. Let me show you how to do it. Mm -hmm. And then um, he changed the narrative on my arrest. It was for a robbery. He changed the narrative that made it actually fit what occurred. I just did the, the bare bones because some other detective told me, nah, just, just put this down mm -hmm. on such and such a date complainant told you that person knocked them in the head and took their stuff and that was it and ran he goes no he goes no this is not how you're going to write that mm -hmm. and then he showed me and I, I did it like that and you know the DA was impressed the intake DA was impressed by it but they were like okay so uh, it's just a memory but that's the way he was my my other cousin he was a correction officer who went to the state courts and he was the same thing they were all just like these cool guys they were older than me and you know they walked around talking about experiences that occurred in their respective jobs and you know how they dealt with it and stuff so i mean it was it was kind of like them there was one other detective um this guy graham witherspoon who was a de transit detective um he was an old timer it was a, a bunch of old timers um black guys who be like listen kid everything was listen kid let me see your paper and they all said the same thing let me see your paperwork which i ended up doing too as i got older let me see your paperwork you should do this you should do that you know don't get yourself caught out there. I know you want to be active, but you got to protect yourself because, you know, things are bad and people are getting shot all the time and no one has any respect for the uniform and they just as soon hurt you as they would turn themselves in. You know, so they, you know, little words of wisdom and stuff, but, you know, I picked up on it and some of it I agreed with, some of it I didn't, but, you know, you still have to find your own way. Yeah, I was wondering based on my experience of what I witnessed in 2020 in terms of civil unrest in New York City, what your experience has been as a Black man in the policing profession, and if you don't mind talking about some of the obstacles that you've navigated over the course of your career. 
No, not at all. So, I mean, being a black cop is challenging. Um, you always hear about people talking about cops are racist, whether it's a white cop, a black cop, a Spanish cop. And, you know, to be honest with you, I mean, I've seen racism coming from all sectors. I've experienced it. It's subtle, but guys wanted to do their job. Guys still did their job. Um, a lot of the things I think that the public perceives is blown out of proportion because people are afraid to be honest about what goes on. I mean, you work in, you know, stop and frisk was like a big, uh, oh, we got to stop, stop and frisk. So that was like a big uh, mantra, you know, for the former administration, the mayor's administration and activists. But the bottom line was, if you lived in those neighborhoods where the crime was, in East New York, in Brownsville, in Bed-Stuy, in Bushwick, certain areas in the Bronx, certain areas in Queens, the people who live there are predominantly Black and Hispanic. You have a smattering of, of whites. You know, each section of a neighborhood changes based on people's earnings. Right. So you, you have, you know, white people that live in one area, Black people live in another area, then you have the middle class. It's a, a mixture of things. So if you're in law enforcement and you work in a precinct, where 98% of the people that live there are black and Hispanic and brown and whatever else, that's the people that will you will have contact with day in and day out, whether it's a positive contact or it's a, a negative contact, or it's, you know, that's who you have contact with. The people that live there want your help. They need your help. They are not calling you saying that oh, some white guy got off the train, came here and robbed me. No, the guy down the block or around the corner who happens to be black or Hispanic is the one that robbed me. When are you guys going to do something about it? So when people started not wanting to say this, oh, we can police ourselves. We can do this. So stop and frisk be like, no, the mayor and the commissioners, and they decided, well, we have a tool that can help combat some of the crime. And it was gun crime. Drugs was a whole nother altogether. When we were fighting to get the drugs off the street and lock up the people selling the drugs, no one had a problem with that. I mean, people might have been upset with the sentences that these people were getting for prison, but that had nothing to do with the police department. The state legislators set those laws and how much time they should get in prison for it. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is we were supposed to get them off the street. But when you have people murdering and raping and robbing people every single day and people who are activists refuse to admit that the elephant is the room in the room, it's the same very people that you're saying are saying that the police are racist. Well, point the finger at them and say, wait a minute, but you run around every single day robbing, raping, and murdering your own people, but you're blaming the police for a incident or a couple of incidents for causing all the problems in the neighborhood. No, that's not what the problems come from. The police wouldn't even have to do what they do, policing, if we want committing crimes and blaming like some idiot politician said, oh, well, maybe they needed to get baby formula for their kids. The most idiotic and lunatic garbage you ever wanted to hear. That's what you're blaming robberies and murder and rapes on, on someone needing baby formula? No, no. That, and it's just crazy. But everybody jumps on the train mm -hmm. and they follow these people around like, oh, they're racist and they chant and they yell. And me, you know, people ask me and I'm, I'm, I'm like, no, well, I don't know. Five of the murders that are committed over there were committed by five black guys. How is that the police's fault? We didn't murder them. 
they were murdered by five black guys who didn't rob them for money. They murdered them because they're battling over drug turf. So why aren't we addressing that? You know, same, no matter in every single neighborhood, sh sh you know, stuff like that happens. But sure, should cops who get caught committing crimes be held accountable for it? Absolutely. If it, it rises to the level where they should lose their job, absolutely, they should lose their job. And if they have to go to jail for it, they should go to jail for it. But don't look at me because I'm black and say, well, you shouldn't be around. I mean, I literally have people tell me, you should be ashamed of yourself for arresting blacks and Hispanics. You're a fascist. I'm a fascist for doing my job. Your grandmother couldn't walk to the store without crossing the street to go around the eight guys that are sitting on a stoop smoking weed and drinking beer and, and saying stuff to her until we came and did what we were supposed to do. Now they're back. Now they're back because the prior administration was like, ah, you know, they can urinate and defecate, leave them alone. They can do it on the street or in the alley. They can drink beer, they can smoke weed. They can do that. We're gonna give them shoot, shooting centers where they can go shoot up drugs and don't worry about it. But yeah, it's not in your neighborhood. So no, you're not worried about it. It's in these people's neighborhood. And now it's going back to the way it used to be drug deals on the street. Now there's a proliferation of guns on the street again. You don't want us to stop people um, legitimately to stem a gun violence. It's la-di-da, let everybody go do what they wanna do. And the only time the police should interdict is when they get called. It's just ridiculous. And me as a black guy, you know, I, I call spade a spade. You're committing crimes in your own neighborhood. You're the, you're the problem. You're the scourge that needs to be taken out of here and dealt with accordingly. And that's, and that's just the way it is. You know, a lot of politicians, because they're politicians, just will never ever say it. They'll never ever say that, never say it. Oh, I, I can't, because I got to get elected. Yeah, but you know what's going on. Yeah, but you don't understand. We just need to train, we need to train our police to do and act differently. I was like, I don't have a problem with that, but it's not the police that are robbing, raping and murdering. Consider one person gets hurt by the police, then deal with it, but don't wipe us, you know, brushes all with the same brush. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I'm acknowledging I'm a young female white woman, but the civil unrest that I experienced while living in Brooklyn Heights in this early summer of 2020 was unlike anything I had ever seen. And my precinct was almost overrun by, I don't know if the right word is protesters or agitators because politically, Both. I don't know what, what, you know, is acceptable, but yeah, I, I had never seen anything like that in New York City and the vilification of the entire police department or law enforcement profession across the country at that point was new to me, you know? Yeah, uh, it, it was eye-opening. Just to, you know, first when the protesters came, you know, um, they had a right to protest. But then when they turned it into smashing out windows on people's cars, on businesses, you know, walking across people's cars and jumping up and down on the roof, smashing businesses and looting businesses, then what is it that we're actually trying to say? Are you just going for a free-for-all and it's a crime of opportunity because the police, we know the police were over there. They're all standing at the Barclays Center and there's nobody on Smith Street or Atlantic or on Fifth Avenue. So you know what? All these stores are closed. Let's break into them and rob them for what we can and let's smash up people's cars. So where is all your legitimacy for your right to protest gone? 
You know, it, it's just garbage. It's just garbage. And then, you know, to get in, get in a person's face and scream. And I think, you know, with the mayor pushing them saying, oh, they have a right to. I mean, the, the older chiefs would just tell the older cops and detectives, we don't want you guys in the front. We want you guys in the back. Because uh, I don't care who you are, you could not stand one inch from my nose, screaming and spitting in my face. You know, the things that you were saying, whether I believe them or not, you just cannot be that close to me and think that you are going to just walk away from me and give your buddies a high five. You know, like, yeah, look what I did. Look what I did. I put that cop in this place. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So they let the young cops be up in the front because they don't know any better. They don't know any better. And then the agitators are behind those people telling them, yeah, yeah. And then the bricks start flying and the bottles start flying. And these people in the front, and, and half of them don't even know what they're screaming and shouting about. They really don't, have no idea whatsoever. But yet they go and tear up stores and tear up people's cars and set things on fire and rob and beat up other people who came to protest who might be straggling going back to wherever it was that they came from, you know, I mean, that's, it's just not right. It's just not right. But it was hands off for the police. Don't do anything. Let them do, let them vent, let them vent. So you as a store owner or a homeowner or just a property owner watching your stuff being destroyed and the police just standing there with their hands behind their back doing nothing. So what are we saying? Just anytime you get mad, just come to New York city and just loot the place and nobody's gonna do anything about it. Look at look at the stores that have shut down because of the shoplifting that is allowed to happen. And there you go, you got that dumb politician. Oh, they need formula for the babies. They're not even stealing formula. They're stealing other stuff that they go and sell on the street. You know, but what about the people whose jobs, people who lose their jobs because the stores have to close down, the mom and pop stores that don't have insurance because of the areas that they serve and the insurance companies like, eh, this is a high crime area, but they were doing a great service for the community, you know, and everybody's living. Now somebody comes and burns out their store, loses the store and then burns it out. They have nothing. And the people that live in that community no longer have that store that they can go to because they know mom in the store and mom will give them a week or two to pay for groceries that they bought, you know, not beer and cigarettes, but milk and eggs and, you know, uh, sundries for the house. And they know that, yeah, don't worry, uh, ma'am, I know you're going to be back. And, you know, she would send the grandchild back, whatever, just to pay, but not anymore. It, it's it's crazy. It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Very, very polarized. It's hard to see the broader perspective. So I want to talk more about your career solving cold cases. Listeners, Detective Stratford was a recipient of the NYPD's Combat Cross for Heroism during his career, which is the New York City Police Department's second highest honor awarded in the force. On that note, I'd like to discuss more about his long career policing and successfully solving cold cases, which include the 1988 rape and strangulation of nine-year-old Joy Little and her mother inside a Bronx apartment and building a case for serial killer Rodney Alcala, the so-called dating game killer, sought for the 1971 rape, torture, and strangulation of two Manhattan women. So, Detective, how did you end up working cold cases? Good question. So, <laughs> after I became a detective, um, I worked in a couple different places in Central Robbery, the Warren Squad, Special Investigations. 
Um, I was, and then I was assigned to the police commissioner's investigation squad. And we worked on old murders, um, sex assaults, and gun crimes. So I, I did a little bit of undercover work at buying guns uh, for that. So the police commissioner's investigation squad, the police commissioner at the time was Bratton, was basically his, for want of better word, goon squad. So if there were crimes going on, there were about 60 of us. And then it started to whittle, whittle down. All detectives from all three departments, I was actually detached from the transit police to that, along with some several of the housing detectives and you know guys that were already on NYPD. And he would send us out to problem areas in the, in the city and say, all right, I want you guys focusing on guns. I want you guys focusing on robberies. We have several uh, suspects that were ID'd for murder that were committed in the 75 precinct or the 48 precinct. I want, and the precinct guys are doing their part, but we want you guys to go out there and help go look for these guys, see if we can find them. We were pre-Comstat detectives, but we were going out and he would say, I want you guys out there doing this. So that's what we did. And, you know, it was, it was pretty eye-opening. So with that being said, we were having so much success in finding murderers that the squads had already identified and had issued warrants for um, that he decided that, you know what, you know, we have a lot of old murders. And during this time, there had to be maybe 9,000 unsolved murders where the suspects had been identified, but it couldn't be proven. No one knew where they were or they just weren't identified, but the murders were still open. Murders, murders never close unless someone's arrested. So he said, yeah, I want you guys to start looking at these. So he whittled down the investigation squad and handpicked, you know, several guys to go. And then they went and, you know, did interviews for other detectives from other precincts and commands to come. So when the cold case squad started, there were maybe 60 of us and we covered all five boroughs, but we didn't have an office in Staten Island. Brooklyn covered Staten Island. We had a Manhattan office, a Bronx office, and a Queens office. And then we had a special projects office, which worked with the FBI and ATF and the DEA. They turned out in Manhattan. I eventually ended up there, but I started out in the Bronx. They sent me to the Bronx first. And, you know, it, it, you know, it wasn't bad. I knew the Bronx. I had worked up there before. You know, you just you would get cases. I was familiar with Joy Little and Selena Cooper, um, but that case was assigned to another detective. We just helped out. So when we left, I left and I went um, to Brooklyn. The Bronx case was transferred with the detective from the Bronx to Brooklyn. And she um, decided she was gonna retire. So they gave the case to me. Then I went to special projects, just the long and short of it. I ended up in Manhattan. And the lieutenant there said, I want you to keep working on this case. And one of my chiefs at the time was Joe Resnick, um, who's just retired, he aged off. You know, he said, yeah, I want you to keep working on that case and don't let it go. So there were several of us working on it. And in 1988, there was no DNA. The suspects, people were arrested for that case. Three men were arrested on that because they were friends of the mother. The mom had a check it past, she had become a heroin addict, a cocaine addict, and she would allow people to come up there. Joy, her daughter, had been taken away from her and was being raised by the grandmother. The grandmother lived in the building next door, joining buildings. 
And one, the father was in the Marine Corps. And one day the grandmother just needed a break and she felt that the mom was doing better and said, listen, I'm gonna go uh, visit some friends in Atlantic City. I'll be back in the morning. Can you watch the baby? She wasn't a baby, she was nine years old. And she said, yeah, sure. And there was no problem. And she left, comes back uh, Saturday night, doesn't, it's late, doesn't want to wake them up and going to go, you know, prepare to go to church Sunday morning. She sends up uh, another granddaughter to the apartment and says, you know, go bring Joy down so we can go to church. The little girl can't get in the apartment. She knocks on the door, bangs on the door, goes back down, tells the grandmother, you know, grandma that they're not answering the door. Um, Selena doesn't have a phone. Grandmother goes up to the fourth floor, is banging on the door. She tries the knob, pushes the door open, and she finds her granddaughter and her son's ex uh, murdered, laying on the, on the bed. He had strangled them, raped them, and he posed them and tied their limbs behind them so that when you walked into the room, they just were presented to you in a way that's just not even dignified at all. So I worked on that case, oh my God, for probably 10 years. And there was no DNA back then. And the person who I eventually arrested and got a confession from, all of a sudden his DNA popped up in the database. But I had gone back and gotten all the evidence from the case and resubmitted it and sent it to a lab in Maryland that could do DNA testing. And then from there, they were able to, to generate a profile. Brought it, I went down, picked it up, brought it back to New York and gave it to our OCME's office who put it in another database and nothing happened. And then a couple of years went by and then I get a phone call one day and says, hey, we have a guy that just hit. He's in, he was in state prison for a burglary and he hit on your DNA. And I was like, to what case? And they said to Cooper Little. I said, you kidding me? They go, yes. And I go, what's his name? So they gave me his name. I go back and get the file and I'm going through the file, going through the file, going through the file. I'm like, that's not one of the guys that got arrested. In the, in the very beginning of the case, 1988, in that year, he was interviewed because someone gave his name as not Robert Fleming, they called him Hakeem. So word went out through the neighborhood that, hey, uh, detectives want to talk to you. So he walked into the precinct on his own and said, hey, I'm Hakeem. I heard you guys wanted to talk to me. So there's a little itty bitty piece of paper that says Robert Fleming from Colgate Avenue came into the precinct. We talked to him about his involvement, how he knew, you know, Selena and Joy. And he says, oh, I used to go out with her, but I hadn't seen her in over a year. That's it. That's all it said about him. And they went on to go look at the other guys who they knew had been there that night based on tips from, from other people. I go back and I look at my notes from the years that I did the investigation. And I said, wait a minute, I have a girl who told me about a, a guy named Hakeem who she saw coming out of the building. And we go back and I talk to her again. I go, so if I showed you photos, would you be able, she goes, oh yeah. I said, so you remember what you told me? She says, yeah, I remember. And I said, so this guy, have you ever seen him again? She says, you know, off and on, he's been coming back, you know, to the neighborhood, but I heard he was upstate. Upstate meaning up north, meaning in prison. That's the way we call it. So me and my partner, we go back and we get some photos together and we go back. And I said, take a look at these, it's called a six pack. And she goes, yeah, that's him right there. I go, that's him what? 
that's the guy that came out of the building that night um, when I was sitting on a, on a thing. I said, do you know what his government name is? She goes, no, and we only knew him as Hakeem because he was a drug dealer, but he lives on the other side. And everything, everything is a acronym or a way. The other side, meaning he lived on the other side of the Bronx River, not on their side of the Bronx, uh, in the South Bronx where they live. I go, no problem. Got an ID, you know, got a name, got a DNA hit. And it's just the point of having to find him. He's still a drug dealer, but he was, he was a serial rapist, we found out. And he was doing it in such a way that he was infected with AIDS and he was going out of his way to infect women with AIDS. And I know this because eventually when I did track him down and got him in to our office and you know tried to get a confession from him, he would only admit to certain things, not enough that, that raised it where we could arrest him. Um, we had to let him go. And then he disappeared for like two years because he was in and out of drug treatment and HIV shelters. And it's very hard to get information on those. But he took an arrest because a girl set him on fire um, when she found out that he had infected her with AIDS. She waited for him to fall asleep and took lighter fluid and poured it all over him in the bed and just basically made a trail out to the door and lit it. Set him on fire, but he lived. He was able to get away from it. So there, a report popped up. I had an information card in and they said, hey, a guy you were looking for, he's on the thing. I'm like, where is he? Oh, he's in the precinct over in the 7-0 precinct. And, you know, we rushed down there to talk to him and stuff, but he wouldn't talk to us. And the girl was arrested and she wouldn't talk to us either. And it was just one of those things. And they did what they had to do with him, but he got let go because she wouldn't cooperate. And another year went by and he got arrested again. I mean, we would follow, now I knew where to follow him. I would follow him and walk around. He even said at a trial that, yeah, that detective, every time I turned around, he was behind me somewhere. I was in the Bronx, he was behind me. I was in Queen. Yeah, because he, he, I had to keep track of him. So I, the last time he got arrested, you know, I sat him down and had a heart to heart with him. And he, he was just like, what do you want to know? I said, I want to know what happened. And he detailed to me why he killed them. Somewhere in his twisted thoughts, he realized he did rape both of them, but he realized that he can't walk out of that apartment and leave them alive. And, you know, he, he gave it up. And when we went to arraignment, he spoke to me. He wanted to make a deal. He's like, I can't do the rest of my life in prison. How about if I can get a 25 flat? I go, that's not up to me. And I went over to the DA, who was Nancy Borko, and I spoke to her. And I said, Nancy, he wants to plead guilty right now. She goes, I can't make that decision. Let me go talk to the family. So all the family had showed up for his arraignment. And meaning the father... Uh, Selena's family, who, who were from New Jersey, and uh, Joy's family, who were from the Bronx, and the grandmother. And they just were like, absolutely not. We want him to go to trial. Because they asked, if he goes to trial, how much is he going to get? They said, 50 to life. They said, we want him to go to trial. We'll take our chances. And, um, you know, ultimately, he did go to trial, and he blew trial, and he got 50 to life. Um, he sued me several times, though. And he's lost in federal court. And he's, you know, tried to get the conviction overturned. But that was, you know, those two. I mean, I can't believe you're, the details that you're going through, having to have to live through them, and also the fact that you're talking about 
working cases for years and years at a time. We already talked about, you know, the politics of policing. I want to dive into what are the human factors of policing, meaning like the mental, emotional, moral challenges that you've faced and overcome in your role? So you want to know if I took it home with me? I sure did. Um, there's not enough hours in the day for you to be able to, as a detective, to finish your case, finish the work. So I, I would leave, you know, I'd sit there at my desk and, you know, I didn't just work on one case at a time. I'd work on, you know, maybe five or six at a time, you know, put one down, go look at another one, you know, that sort of thing. And fielding phone calls and then helping other, you know, the guys in my team, you know, we'd help each other, you know, work on their cases. So you get familiar with it. But I would go home and I, I'd be driving, sitting in the BQE traffic, thinking to myself, what could I have done differently? Or maybe who else can I go talk to uh, regarding this case? And, you know, I was like, ah, you know, and I'm like, ah, I should have did this or I could have said that. I mean, I would get home and if we didn't have basketball practice, you know, sometimes I would just go straight to practice at the high school or, you know, I would go home first, change and then go to practice. But, you know, I'd get home and you know, my wife didn't really want to hear about details about stuff like that. You know, it's just like, I don't want to know about people who do stuff to children and women and stuff, So, which was fine. But I would, you know, get my mind off it. I'd go to practice and, you know, focus entirely on practice and stuff. And then, um, you know, I come home and maybe sit down in front of the TV to de-stress a little bit, but there'd be something on television and I get an aha moment and I'd be like, oh, wow, I should try that when I go back to work, when I go sit down with this guy and see. And there was actually things that I saw on TV, as silly as they were, I'm like, you know, when I sit down with this person, I'm going to try that. And just to see, you know, how they react, you know, for me saying something like that to them or showing them something. So it would, you know, and then you'd sit at work and, you know, I'd be upset when I leave the, I mean, not like upset, like kicking cans and stuff in the street when I leave the DA's office because they're like, you don't have enough, you need a confession. And with cold cases, a lot of times before DNA, we needed confessions. You know, you, you get good at it after a while. You know, I, guys would say, you know, that's Stratford, he's such a liar. He told me this and he told me that. I'm like, yeah, I, I can do that. I didn't make you tell on yourself, but you know, you're never gonna get people to admit to murdering or committing heinous crimes unless you trick them a little bit, you know, because some some people are so adept at lying to the police that they will never, ever admit to something if they know that they're the only person that knows, you know, and it's just, you know, you, you have to, you get frustrated talking to people, you know, people slam the door in your face, people are like, man, do your job, I'm not helping you do your job, and then you got to, and then that same person that tells you, go do your job, two years later, oh, I remember you, I was like, do you from where? Or oh, you would hear about uh, a particular case. I go, what case? And they go, that one. I go, no, nah, I don't remember you, but now I'm here because your brother got murdered. Yeah, 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 come on in. And I'm looking at them and I do remember. I just don't let on that I remember. You're the same person told me go do my job. Now someone in your family gets murdered and now you need my help, you know? And then, you know, developing relationships with people who didn't want to have relationship with you before because they don't want to tell on people. And they're like, you know, listen, you know, I mean, and this and this is a true story. This guy was like, I know about the murder that you came here about, but those were my boys. I just wasn't trying to tell on them. 
and you know I can give you information that might help you get to where you need to be. I go, well, let me deal with what happened with your family first, and then we can deal with that afterwards. And two years later, he, you know, he did give me the information that helped us be able to close a homicide that we were working on happening in Marcy Projects in Brooklyn. You know, without ever having to come to testify in court, he just opened up avenues for us to help us get there. I can see how coaching is in your repertoire. Some of these tactics can, can work in both worlds. Yeah, no, it, it, it does because the boys, you know, the high school kids, they, they were always asking me, but they asked the silly stuff. Coach, you ever shoot anybody? Coach, you ever been shot? Does it hurt to get shot? I was like, what do you think? You know, and they, they you know, little things, but then, you know, I get to talk to them about life things, you know, without being a life coach, you know, I will tell them if this happens or if that happens, you got to remember, you got to trust your parents, trust your teachers, you know, trust the police. Well, coach, I got pulled over by the cop and he's really nasty to me. I'm like, well, what'd you do? You know, and I'm like, okay, well, I, I agree, but there are things that you should know that when you get pulled over from, by the police, they're pulling you over more than likely for something that you don't perceive that you did wrong. But instead of just jumping up with the trick bag or I didn't do nothing wrong, what are you pulling me over for? Just be like, hey, officer, how you doing? What can I do for you? And they'll tell you, you know, what they did. Be polite, be humble, because sometimes they'll probably let you go. But if you, if you, you know, want to be a knucklehead and, and act like one of your friends acted or something you saw on television, I go, it, you might end up getting more tickets than what you started out going to get in the first place. Because now all of a sudden, now they're really paying attention to you. I mean, different things. I, I you know, I never make excuses uh, for when guys, uh, police do wrong things, you know, because I've been a victim of police stops without them even knowing, you know, before I was a cop, even while I was a cop, because they didn't know I was a cop. And, you know, they start saying things to me and I'm like, like looking at them, like with a side eye, like, did you really just say that to me? And then I, you know, before I even get a chance to ID myself and I'm like, okay, stop right there. Before you say anything else, I'm on the job. Here's my shield and ID card. Well, why didn't you say that before? Like, no, officer, I didn't need to say that before because there was nothing that I said or did that would warrant you speaking to me or anybody the way you did. Have a nice day. Be safe. You and your partner, put my car in drive and drive off. Because it's happened to my parents. But, you know, they've had rewarding experiences. Oh, the cop was so nice. He put your father over because he made an illegal left turn. And when he told, when we told him our son was a police officer, he said, sir, you have a nice day and be more careful, pay attention to what you're doing. Whereas my um, son has been stopped, you know, right where we live, you know, him and some of his friends on their way to the gym, running with their backpacks on, they get stopped, you know, by some crime guys, uh, anti-crime guys. And they ask him where they're going. They say, we're going to the gym. They're like, what gym? They tell him the gym they're going to. And there's three, Three of them, he was in college then. He played at Dominican and his two friends played one at college in Staten Island, the other one was at a college down south. And they proceeded to dump their backpacks on the ground. Look at me, so my son's like, what are you doing? And they're like, mind your business, get, get against the wall. So my son had his phone, he called me and you know, I'm at the house like two minutes away. And I go, where are you? He tells me on Manor Road. I said, I'm, I'm on my way. And I get there and you know, I pull up and they, they didn't find anything because they didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, I, I said to the cop, identify myself. I says, um, 
hey, listen, that's my son. And those are his two friends from school. Like, what's going on? Well, we got a report. I go, I just told you who I was. I asked you what's going on. So if you're going to go that line with me, then get your supervisor. If you're going to tell me what happened, we can adjudicate this because I see you dumped all this stuff on the ground and there's absolutely nothing in our patrol guide that would state that you dumped their property on the ground. Mm -hmm. Supervisor came and the supervisor wanted to adjudicate it. Even to his surprise, the, the cop who was involved and was like, I'm not apologizing. All he had to do was apologize to them. That's all it was. It was no big deal. Just apologize. You stopped them. It's not them. It's not who you're looking for. Apologize. But you dumped all their stuff on the ground. Gym clothes and sneakers. You know, the idea, I said, you, and you knew. You knew. When I got here, it should have been the end of it. But you chose to, you know, get your feathers all ruffled up and your hair up on your neck and go there. So now the boss is here. And I end up, you know, which I didn't want to do. And I took it a little bit further. You know, and, and things like that. You know, but I tell kids, you can't, as long as you're respectful, you know, to the police, if you get stopped, you know, people will come at you the way you come at them. You know, if the cop comes at you wrong just because he is and you think he's wrong, he might not be wrong. He might have a legitimate reason for stopping you. Maybe you don't like the way he's speaking to you. But if you hold your demeanor and hear him out and then ask the questions, if it still continues to go the way you don't want it to go, then we can deal with it. But at that point right then, the only thing your aggression, re-aggression is going to do is just cause the situation to get worse. And, you know, and, and I tell the boys that. I tell the kids in high school. I go, you have to understand that. They're doing a job. And you have no idea what came over the radio or why he stopped you. But there are ways to deal with it other than getting yourself arrested for something that you didn't even do that wouldn't have amounted to, you know, that sort of arrest situation. To be clear... Where have you coached young athletes in New York and Staten Island and for how long? So over, over almost 30 years, I started out at Trinity Lutheran Elementary School where I had my son and daughter. And then from there, um, I went to Moore Catholic High School as the assistant varsity coach. My son came to Moore. He graduated in 09. And when he, he graduated and you know got his scholarship, then I left Moore and went to St. Peter's with Charlie Driscoll. For the varsity and, and then you know i had pal and then for about 15 years i did the aau with the staten island stingrays and above and beyond which is a brooklyn staten island based aau team do you mind sharing some of your coaching philosophy well when you play basketball even as a child or as a young man it's a sport where you are looking to win and we call it playing cousin basketball is never ever going to get you to the level you aspire to be. If you just want to just come play just to have fun, which it is, it will be fun. You, you can't look at it as, well, I don't have to put the work in to get better. I should be able to play because my daddy was an alumni or my brother was an alumni. It's like, no, put the work in. It's just like with life. If you put the work in and you want to get ahead, you put the work in to get past everybody else. You don't have to step on anybody's neck or head to get there. You just do what is best for you to go. I mean, in life, when you finish playing basketball and you finish college, you, you, you're going to go into the working world and you're going to always want to do your best to get ahead. 
if you just want to be like everybody else and stay in the motor pool, you know, then that's where you'll stay. If you want to get that corner office with the big windows, then you have to aspire to get there. It's just like with basketball. You want to start, you got to work to get there. You want to be an integral part of the team, you got to work to get there. Everything you do, you have to work. I said in the police department, I worked my butt off to become a first grade detective, you know, and didn't hurt anybody to do it. You know, I did what I was supposed to do and then some, and that's how you should be all the time. You know, that crowd of people that you're in the middle of and all the chaos is going on, you know, someone standing outside that crowd looks in and, and they point at you and they tell you, wow, look how cool that guy, he's just standing there looking at everybody else. I want him, go get him, bring him to me. Um, walk him out of that chaos, bring him to us because that's the kind of guy we need. You know, when everybody just goes crazy and one person doesn't, and, but they're in the middle of it all, um, get them, that's the guy that you want. And that's how you have to be. You have to, you have to look over the top of everybody else. You don't have to, you don't have to dump on them, but you got to recognize that what they're doing is not going to work for you. You need to get out of there and go see what else is on the outside. So, you know, that's what I tell kids, you know, they want to get good. You want to aspire to greatness. You got to separate yourself from people, you know, cousin basketball, <laughs> never, you never play, you never play your friends as hard in practice as you will another person. So if you play your friends hard in practice, you will play the same way in an actual game. If you don't play hard or compete hard in practice, that's how you're going to compete in a game. So you'll never get to where you want to be. Yeah. Working at the FDMY, there were two mantras that always stood out. One was um, train like you fight. Mm -hmm. And then the other is uh, under pressure. You don't rise to your expectations. You sink to the level of your training. Yep, that's right. And then you mentioned earlier, aside from coaching, helping you outside of your professional career, you would go home and watch television and pick things up from things that you were watching. Now you have helped bring real life experience to television as a technical advisor for prominent shows and films. So what do you enjoy most about this role and what do you hope to get across? So the TV, I used to come home and watch the TV shows and it, you know, there were several crime shows that I would watch. Some were fictional and some were true life. So the true life ones, basically you sit there and you try and pick, uh, I would have done it this way, or I would have done it that way. But with the fictional ones, you're noticing things that they're doing, be like, that doesn't happen. You know, we don't do that in the NYPD. This is wrong and that's wrong. You know, why don't they do this? So being in cold case, we were getting a lot of um, media attention when we were solving cases. And we would get a lot of calls from media outlets to interview uh, the detectives in our unit and other units too about cases that they had. You know, just come on and talk, you know, really before podcasts became famous, you know, there was ID Discovery and CNN and, you know, different ones. And um, the department would always just say, no, 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 we're not, we're not gonna free up our guys to go talk about it. Mainly because of legal reasons, if the case is still open or, if the case after conviction hasn't been adjudicated through the courts. So, you know, they would let me talk about certain things and other things they just, no, you can't. So now that I retired, all these different entities have been reaching out to me again. Um, to be, oh, you wanna talk about the dating game killer? Oh, come on and talk about this one, talk about that one. You know, Nancy Grace, um, 
Donnie Wahlberg on uh, Very Scary People, yeah. uh, Gentleman Holes, a, bu a bunch of different ones. And, you know, so, you know, I, I do it. But also, too, there's several uh, TV shows, The Center, City on a Hill, uh, Law and Order, uh, Blue Bloods, you know, have asked me to come and sit down and talk to the writers and relate experiences to them. And what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And eventually it rolled into me being hired by them to be a technical consultant and be there to say, well, this is what the NYPD would do, or this is what a police department would do, or an interrogation would be like this. Just picking up on my years of experience and doing those things, because mostly, mostly these shows deal with murder mm -hmm. and other things. And so they want someone to be like, well, would you have really said that to the person? And I'm like, no, no. Well, what, what about this? Does, does this seem like true? Would this have happened? I go, absolutely. I mean, you actually can talk to people like that? I go, absolutely. You know, I'm trying to get them to talk. I want, I'm, they're not confessing to, to stealing, you know, candy from the, from the drugstore. They took someone's life and I'm going to talk to them in a way that they understand this. Oh, okay. So read this. I'm like, yeah, yeah. They would say that to him. Really? I go, yes, absolutely. So yes, it's more believable that way. I go, you know, people commit murder. They're not, you know, for the most part, they're not soft, you know, worse. They say worse things to people than you could ever imagine. Or, and they've heard it all. So no, you know, you, yes, that's what you would do. Um, so my friend from Blue Bloods, he is, he was an actor and a consultant and now he's a producer on the show and he's still an actor on the show. So he was involved for 20 plus years. So he would call me and be like, hey, when, uh, what about this? What about that? And he goes, there's these shows that are interested in talking. Why don't you go sit down and talk to their writers and see what you can do. He goes, it could, it could turn into something beneficial for you when you retire from the job. And so that's what I would do. And they would hire you part-time, you know, to do consulting. And then, like I said, several shows picked me up full-time, City on the Hill, The Center. And, you know, now I'm with uh, the new Law and Order, uh, the, re the, the mm -hmm. reboot. That's super exciting. And I, I often watch TV and sometimes I kind of roll my eyes and chuckle just based on my experience. Like that is so unrealistic, so far from the truth. And it just like fuels this misrepresentation of real life disasters and emergencies that everybody sensationalizes. So I, I appreciate the fact that you give like real life feedback to yeah. these television shows as this technical advisor, because hopefully it has more influence on the way people see things and make sense of what they're looking at. Right. No, no. And, and, and it's good. I, but I, I think the term they told me was, is it cinematic license? Is that what it is? Sounds you know, right. like, yeah, like everybody's not going to know it, Wendell. I'm like, yeah, but what about all the guys? The guys? Yeah, but we still have other people out there who are not going to pick up on it that quick. And we're trying to make the show move quicker. And I, and so I understand that. I, I understand that. But there are certain things that they do totally agree on. And they go, what? We absolutely will take that out or we'll change it. Mm -hmm. or We'll change a line, you know, do things a little bit different, you know, so, and it's good. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of give and take. And the people are good, you know, because they do ask and they do listen. You know, I mean, I've had some experiences with a couple of shows that I'm not going to mention that, they didn't care. They're mm. like, so what? You know, and those shows are no longer on the air. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, I know we're already over time and we only skimmed the surface once again in our conversation, but I guess the thing I want to know the most at the end is what motivated you to stay with the NYPD for nearly four decades? What's your why? So, um, you know, everyone used to say to me, oh, you're crazy staying past 20 years. Oh, you're taking a, you're risking your pension, you know, uh, People don't care what you do. You're going to make an arrest and it's going to go south on you and you're going to lose everything. But you know what? I didn't, I didn't look at it that way. And being in cold case gave me a feeling of accomplishment because there were cases and, and don't misunderstand me, you know, murders are never closed, but they don't get worked on every single day. And the more time that goes past, the less likely someone's going to go back and look at it. And I used to go back, not just me, but other guys, we used to go back and look at older cases, 10, 15, 20 year old cases. And I just, I just always said, you know what, just a little more time, just a little more time. I'll be able to solve it. I'll be able to solve it. And, you know, you, you, you have to read, you can't solve everything. Everything is just not going to be solved because sometimes it's just not enough or there's just one person that's involved and they were smart enough not to ever tell anybody about what they did and they covered their tracks or it's just one of those things where you just never, unless someone comes forward and says, hey, I know what happened, you can't solve it. But I always would try and discern solvable cases. I just hated thinking, even when I transferred in, when they put me in the police commissioner's detail, I asked them, you know, there's a couple of cases I wanna bring. I don't want to, I don't wanna not do them because I know that once I leave, no one else is going to pick them up. You know, it's hard pick them up, picking up another detective's case and picking up where he left off from if you have no idea what he did before. I mean, you do have an idea what he did before, but you got to go all the way back to the beginning before he had it and come all the way up and then talk. So he allowed me to bring seven cases with me to the PC's detail. And even guys that were there, like, you're crazy. Why'd you do that? Then he's going to be expecting us to do that too. I go, he's not going to expect you to do anything. You know, you guys didn't work where I worked. And, um, you know, I saw two and one was a 1993 murder of, of a 50 year old man uh, by a registered sex offender who had been off the radar for like 19 years. Nobody knew where he was. And I, my, myself and another detective from the DA's office went back and, you know, we did what we needed to do to, uh, with the evidence and, you know, um, and then once we got a, a, a DNA hit, we found this guy. Um, we had to search for him because he's living under another name because he, he was an unregistered sex offender, I should say. He had raped someone back in 1983, kidnapped, robbed, raped uh, a woman in front of her husband. She ended up getting pregnant behind that rape. Just was just so traumatized, she couldn't come to court. So he was allowed to take a plea and, you know, did one to three years and he was out. And as soon as he got out, he fled. He fled and went to, to the West Coast, committed another rape out there, got on the radar, was supposed to come back to New York and he made his way back and he just stayed underneath the radar. And then, you know, I get a DNA hit on him. And that was, I was like, I don't wanna let this case go. And then they called me and said, hey, we got a hit. And that's how they always do it. They call, hey, we got a hit on one of your cases. What case? 1993, remind me. It was, you know, a 50 year old man, James Hawkins, Francis Gordon is the one that did it. And we went out and it took us about six months to find him. 
found him living under another name with his mother and his wife. But during that investigation, we uncovered a whole sordid life that this guy was leading. And his wife was taken aback. You know, I was like, you can tell her what you did. It's not up to me, but you're under arrest right now. And we took him and we closed that case. And then I had one other one um, where I didn't get a chance to close it, but I'm so close to the family that I'm hoping that one day, you know, we are able to get a DNA hit and they'll be able to close it. But it was things like that that make me want to stay longer, you know, because there were several other murders um, involving children that just wouldn't get solved. I mean, you, you can put leather to the sidewalk and keep going and keep going and keep going until you can just get that one little break. They're just never going to get solved. And it just, I kept saying, oh, one more day, one more day, one more day. That's why I stayed, you know, 38 years. That's why I stayed. I took something away from what you just said, discern solvable cases. Mm -hmm. I think that is now a new mantra that I'm going to carry with me that I think is transferable to other situations in life, right? Just control what you can control, give your best, discern solvable cases, set yourself up for success as often as you can. For success, absolutely. You know. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. a long road, but eventually you get there as long as you don't step off, both feet off that path. One foot goes off, it's not a problem. When both feet go off, you got to hope that you have a strong lifeline to get you back on that path. Mm -hmm. So it's good. Is there anything else you want to add today before we wrap up? I know I skimmed over a couple things, including your 9-11 experience. I don't know if that's something you feel like sharing today. I mean, you know, 9-11 for me, and all the guys that were down there was something that you'll never forget. I mean, it was my birthday and I was working and getting off the ferry when the second plane hit the tower and I walked up. My office at the time was on Chambers Street and Broadway, but, you know, I saw the plane hit, you know, the other one was already burning. And, you know, I walked up to the plaza, you know, called my office and told them, listen, I'm down here at the World Trade Center, a plane hit. My boss was like, stay down there. You know, we're coming down. It's maybe 10 other detectives. But, you know, during the time that I was down there, you know, I was watching all the FD guys respond. A guy I went to college with, Kenny Escoffrey, he was coming from the firehouse on Lafayette Street. You know, we saw each other. We waved, said, hey, he goes, you're not going in there, are you? I go, no, I'm not going in there. He goes, I'll see you. I told him, be careful. And then he went in with his company. And um, it was like the last time I saw him for days, over a week. You know, the towers came down, we were down there, we all ran. And I thought I had, you know, I had like a moment to think. I was like, oh my God, Kenny was there. There were other people I saw, but Kenny and I were roommates in college. You know, we were at each other's weddings and we're each other's uh, children's godparents. He lives in the Bronx, I live in Staten Island. And then, um, you know, phones were out and stuff. And then I, I stole some time to go over to the firehouse um, on Lafayette and asked the guys there, you know, and I knew guys from the firehouse that got killed because when I got there, the bunting was up. And, you know, I asked him, I said, hey, hey um, a friend of Kenny, uh, a scoffery, Zoom, we called him, is he here? He goes, yeah, he's here. And it was like a relief flooded through me. And they went back and they called him and he came downstairs and he was just all beaten down. Um, and we hugged each other. And I go, well, bro, I, I thought you died. He goes, nah, but, you know, a lot of guys in the house 
we lost a lot of guys. And I go, I know, I know. And then he says, listen, I'm tired. I got to go get some rest because then we're going back down to meet other people. I said, no problem. And I left because I was down. We were assigned to the morgue. They took a bunch of us and put us up at the morgue at 38 um, at Bellevue to start IDing bodies that were coming in looking for, um, for tattoos and rings and pins and stuff like that uh, to help them, you know, do that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, everybody had similar, you know, experiences. You know, I was down there for like, three months, you know, back and forth. And, you know, the morgue was just, um, I mean, I've seen dead people before, but this was like different. Um, and then the plane crashed in the Rockaways and then they held us over to bring in the bodies from, from the plane crash, which was just even more crazy because, you know, they weren't victims of a crime. They were victims of an accident. And it was just, it was bedlam. It was, it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you stay up there and then they were like, well, you still got murders to solve. And then I was back to, by January, December, I was back to, you know, working on homicides again. Detective, you really are one of the most resilient people I've ever talked to. I mean, it's unbelievable some of the work that you've been able to do in your lifetime. And thank you for your service and thank you for sharing your lessons. It's really appreciated. So before we officially wrap up, I wanted to do a quick rapid fire Q&A with you. Are you ready? Yes. Favorite leader from any time in history? Yeah. <laughs> uh. Now that's a, that's a hard one. Move on to the next one, you know, because I, I have a lot. I have, I have, a, I have a lot and it's just, you know, I don't want to be like, you know, it was Martin Luther King and it wasn't because I was a kid then, you know, there were other people that I actually could focus on. Um, and I, I would say it would have been Jesse Jackson. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is a hard question. Okay. Favorite policing related TV show or film. So the NYPD Blue, when that was on, and the French Connection and Heat, which was with Robert De Niro. Okay, any podcasts, books, radio shows that you recommend? Of course, I'm gonna recommend my own book. I didn't write it, but it's about me and two other detectives. It's called The Restless Sleep by Stacey Horn. It came out in 05. It, an author we met when we were down on the pile with the World Trade Center when we were down there after the buildings collapsed, and she wanted to know what we were doing down there and how come we weren't out solving murders. And we're like, well, we're doing what every other cop and fireman in the city is doing right now. We're helping out with rescue efforts. The department gave her permission to ride with us for a couple of years, and she did, and she documented several of the cases that we worked on by being with us and stuff. She's a real, real nice person. She's written several other books before, but I think that one was one of her biggest. And then the Harry Bosch series, Michael Connolly mm-hmm. is uh, the author of that. So it's a series, but he writes a lot of Los Angeles PD based books and Bosch. If you read the books and watch the series, it's very, very good. And then there's several other entities involving Bosch after he retired. And it's, it's really good. It's gritty and it's like, he could do the same thing with the NYPD, you know, with us, but he didn't. He chose LAPD, so we're just fine. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I, I listened to podcasts. The NYPD started started a podcast called A Break in the Case. Mm-hmm. And um, I was featured on two of them, but they they stopped doing it. They might have gone back to doing it. And then uh, I think during the protest, they stopped. But it was based on, you know, murders that occurred. Baby Hope, Rodney Alcala, uh, several other uh, headline-grabbing murders that occurred in the city. And then um, I've been on Jensen and Holes and which was the dating game killer again. And then everybody wants to do the dating game, Rodney Alcala. Everybody wants to, you know, he died in prison um, a couple of years ago. He was on death row, not for the murders I had him for. He confessed to the murders he did here, but we sent him back to California and they put him back on death row because he murdered seven women there. And we think all in told he did about 130 people because he traveled back and forth across the US for 10 years doing his deeds, Jensen and Holes. And then there's another one, uh, Anatomy of a Murder. That's with Anna Siga Nicolosi, Nicolazzi. That, that's a pretty good one too. So she chronicles true life homicides that occurred all across the country, including here. She's a former homicide DA. So that's it. <laughs> a lot of homework so far. Favorite athlete of all time? Bob Lanier. He was a Detroit Pistons center, six foot 11, and he played with the greatest centers in the league at the time. Wes Unsell, Will Chamberlain, Lou Alcender, Will Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He played against the Boston greats um, at the time who were the quintessential big men of that era. So he played, he, and he played basketball the way it was supposed to be played. You know, rebounding, scoring, you know, he was an undersized big man who played way bigger than what he could. And he played when you were allowed to play defense. And then last but not least, your favorite basketball team. Detroit Pistons in the 80s. Dumars, Bob uh, Lambier, Dennis Rodman. They beat teams that no one thought they could beat because they played basketball the way it was supposed to play basketball. They beat the Lakers in the championship. They beat the uh, Portland Trailblazers uh, in the championship. They were a small team, but they were gritty and they were tough. They were like the St. Peter's of <laughs> college basketball, except they won the championship. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. These are all short, but they are loaded questions. So I appreciate your candor. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership